0: Mr. Chaz uses social media to offer advice about raising and educating children.
1: You are that mentor to give them space to feel, learn how to deal and express and communicate what they're feeling.
0: He has hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and TikTok, and his videos often incorporate skits.
1: I am so mad at myself. Hey friend, what's what's going on? I mean, honestly, I'm so embarrassed to even say this, but I I feel like I'm failing as a parent. And songs. Brush, brush, brush your teeth, brush them left and right.
0: His videos encourage us to change patterns of behavior that we learn from those who raised us.
1: We need to learn to allow mistakes, but because we weren't allowed to make mistakes, this perfectionism drives us into shame.
0: This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're exploring ways to rethink parenting. Learn in the show, we hear from scholar Nandita Chowdhury. When she studied developmental psychology, she realized that it didn't always reflect the way that some cultures view raising children. But first, Mr. Chaz. He's a teacher, social media content creator, and host of Mr. Chaz's Leadership, Parenting, and Teaching podcast. Mr. Chaz, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you because you have this amazing social media presence, but you are also helping parents, educators, and most importantly, children think about how they navigate this terrain that is increasingly becoming difficult. Before we get into the work that you do, I'm curious about the why. So what made this the area where you said, this is where I really want to focus and help people together?
1: It really just started off as me becoming a Montessori teacher and really not knowing what to do myself and really struggling with grappling with the fact that I didn't know, that like I knew that I was raising the next generation of humans, but I didn't know how to do it in a way that was helpful. And there were times where I thought I was trying to be helpful, but I may have ended up being more harm than help. Um, and that was really difficult for me to wrap my head around. And so I went on this journey to learn a better way uh, a way that was different from the way that I was raised in a way that was different than what I saw other teachers doing around me. Um, and over the course of that journey, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I learned a lot. I worked with a lot of teachers, a lot, a lot of children. And I got better and better and better and better and better and better and better to the point where I was confident to handle any situation. For a while, I was um, an educational specialist where my role was to go and support teachers and children and, and, and directors with their biggest challenges. And I was in charge of supporting 10 different schools, but then the pandemic happened and I saw how the, the parents became the 24 seven, everything for children. And I really started to see how parents were really struggling with so many, uh, in so many different areas and a lot of areas I had struggled with in the past myself. And I remembered the, the, the visceral pain that I felt of feeling like I was ruining this child that was in front of me. Um, so I just started to make little TikTok videos. Um, and the idea was that if I can make content that is uh, easy to consume, but also you feel like you've, you your perspective has grown or you're, you have an extra little tip that you can take with you to practice, uh, that I can make a pretty big impact.
0: I want to go back to the first thing you said when you answered the question, which is you realized that you have this responsibility of shaping the next generation of humans. You just kind of said it, but that is an awesome task to realize I'm trying to figure out how to do this thing called teaching and being an educator and the people for whom I need to do this are impressionable and are key to what we do. And at the same time, Mr. Chaz, I can't help but acknowledge how few men of color we see as teachers and educators get lifted up in that way. Was there a time when your own identity or your own experience also came into how you thought about, I've got to get this right, I've got to learn how to do this well because of those kinds of challenges uh, and realities of being who you are as a teacher?
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I grew up with ADHD, still have it. Um, And so I received a lot of the uh, punishments and threats growing up. um, And it never felt very helpful for me. Uh, It didn't help me solve my problems or get any closer to my goals. Um, And that was tough for me. And I, I also am aware of... You know, I remember before I had kind of made the change uh, while I was in the very beginning parts of my journey and I was telling children uh, they were coming inside and I was telling them, I said, wash your hands, sit down at the table. Wash your hands, sit down at the table. I'm just kind of repeating myself. Um, And it wasn't really in a sing-songy way. Uh, it was before the songs had really become a, a big part of my practice. Um, And someone pulled me aside. It was uh not even just my boss. It was my boss's boss and said, hey, it sounds kind of like, harsh when you're you're saying that um and it might just be because you have a deeper voice and so you know it sounds a little bit more harsh but you know try a different way try you know and they they offered. they said hey try singing try just putting it in a song and i didn't really believe that i was going to be helpful at first um and i was like okay sure put it in a song whatever um and then i just did it the next day and it actually was a lot more impactful than I was expecting it to be. And I've been using songs ever since. But to really go back to answer your original question, um, it's interesting because I got this question, a similar question, for the first time about a week ago. And I noticed that when I, uh, as a teacher, when I, as a a Black male teacher, um, when I get things, wrong, or I'm kind of using more of the traditional methods, they seem as a little bit, uh, harsher than, uh, my peers around me. But on the flip side, when I started to go through this transformational change, I will say that I've probably got maybe a little bit more praise than I, what I would get if I was, um you know, a woman or maybe even a white woman. I think it's because it's so rare to see uh, uh, men and and I'd say, especially black men really breaking out of the traditional script that we've been passed down um, from generations and generations.
0: So Mr. Chaz, I want to talk about this, this term, gentle parenting, which is a part of a movement, I guess, a change that has a lot of supporters, but also has drawn a lot of critics. And so you have said that even the very term gentle parenting is loaded because of all of that critique and questioning of it. What do you think of gentle parenting as a practice, even if that is not the terminology, perhaps, that brings people in?
1: It is really a movement away from how we've traditionally been raised, which is, and we've traditionally been raised in fear and control-based methods. And really gentle parenting is all about connection and collaborative-based methods. And I think, and I know that it can be more effective, that it is more effective than the fear and control-based method, because the fear and control-based methods push children down into the lower centers of their brain. And really it pushes the adults down to the lower centers of our brain too, and in this place in our brain, where we're using fear and control-based methods, or children are receiving fear and control-based methods, they are less open to being able to receive learning. Not because of uh, some willingness or resistance, but it's just because of that is how the brain works. But when we use when we use more connection and collaborative-based practices, and we're not forcing them on this journey of growth, but we're guiding them, and they're going willingly, then they're going to learn so much more. They're going to grow so much more because we're not dragging them on on their journey. We're They're, they're coming with us.
0: I really like that Framing and I prefer hearing it as connection and collaboration because I think it, it allows us to recognize and really lift up that children are people. They are humans who are entitled to the range of emotions, feelings, and responses. And that part of the job of parenting or educating is supporting that because it allows us as quote unquote the adults to also give that same grace to ourselves and gets away from the critique that, oh, we're just going to raise kids to be disrespectful and to just think that they can say and do anything, when even as parents, we don't always model the kind of behavior that I think we want to see young people adapt. Talk to me about how social media has become such a powerful tool for you to be an evangelist in some ways for connection and collaboration, but to reach people that you wouldn't normally be able to meet in a classroom or in a lecture or workshop.
1: Man, I think that it is the uh a great tool to move us to evolve and move closer to world peace and build the foundations of world peace. Right? It, it's difficult because and the reason why I talk about generational uh cycles or th- these you know generational patterns which are really just these unhealthy patterns of behavior that we have a tendency to pass down from generation to generation, right? My parent did it, so I'm going to, you know, this this way I was raised and I'm going to raise my kids this way. And if if that was the way that you were raised and everyone in the community is kind of doing the same traditional route, then you don't have any other examples of connection and collaborative-based parenting or, or conscious parenting or gentle parenting or whatever. And so not only do you not know what to do, what else it looks like, like, okay, what do I do or say when my child talks back to me or when they don't clean up or when they hit their sibling or when they don't do their homework? You have no idea how to handle these situations because you've never seen it handled other than fear and control-based practices. One, two, not only do you not have the knowledge of what to do, two, you don't, you've never really seen it. So like, even if I tell you it's more helpful to know, like to be able to see what it looks like, to be able to be in the space of it, to see what it feels like to receive. Um, And then three, you don't, even if you do embark on this journey, it can be really difficult. We don't have a community of people around you who are supporting you. When on the contrary, you have a community of people around you who are, who are uh, discrediting what you're doing, here are saying, you are just going to raise those respectful kids and why aren't you disciplining them when they need this thinking and all these other things that uh, bring judgment into uh, your growth of what you're trying to do. Um, and so with all of those factors, it's really hard to break these unhealthy patterns of behaviors or these generational cycles. Social media is a way for you to, one, see uh, what it looks like from other people who are doing it and to know that there are other people doing it. Two, hear and learn about all of these different strategies that you can use. Um, so you can start putting them into practice and and trying them out. And three, there's community in social media of where maybe your mom or uh even your support system down the street isn't on this, you know, conscious parenting journey. But you got Mr. Chaz, you got, you know, uh, uh, Destiny Ann, you got Dr. Becky, you got all these people who can kind of become your community of support. Um, and, and, even, and, and even if it's not other people who are sharing, other people in the comment section just sharing their experience and their stories and how it's been effective and how they've come out on the other side.
0: Coming up, more from Mr. Chaz. He offers advice to educators dealing with perfectionism. And later, Nandita Chowdhury says that developmental psychology hasn't focused enough on the mental well-being of mothers. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
0: Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're discussing changes in how we raise children. I've been talking with social media star, Mr. Chaz, about his journey to becoming better at taking care of children. He shares the lessons that he's learned in his videos on Instagram and TikTok.
1: Children have the same big emotions that drive us to do what we do, but they just don't know how to steer. They might've been born with the emotions that drive them from zero to a hundred, but they weren't born with the ability to steer those emotions.
0: Ask Mr. Chaz, how parents can create social media content in a way that doesn't harm their children.
1: Um, You know, we're learning through that on social media, or just on the internet that, uh, with all this emerging technology, especially with AI, that people are able to take your, your, your information and your child's information, um, and do some pretty harmful things with it, right? Um, one example is they can, uh, start to get pictures of your, uh, child and your child's face and they can put them on the body of whoever they want to, right? And, uh, you know, this could be, they could put your child's face on pornographic material, right? They could put your, use your child's voice and they can take that voice and they can use it to, uh, um, you know, uh, have a, to call you on the phone and say, hey, I need you to wire me some money. I'm in trouble. Can you please help me out? whatever and it sounds like the voice of your child but really it's the it's really just data that someone has uh gotten from your child off the internet now these are dangerous for all of us uh, not just for children these are dangerous for for adults too um, but we need to be aware if we are consciously making that decision and we're putting our, our our own data and information out there. That's one thing, right? That's our decision to make. There are going to be our consequences to have. Um, but when you put your child's information out there and their data and their face out on the internet, now it's not only the potential of you getting consequences from it, but potential that your child is receiving consequences from your actions. Um, you know, and even sometimes it's like we're sending pictures to family members and, you know, grandma's putting it on Facebook and grandma doesn't know that she, all of the followers that she, has on, that she has on Facebook or that her Facebook is a, is a public profile and that everyone has access to it. And there's no harm, you know, they're not, there's no harmful intentions. It's just, I just want to share, you know, my child growing up with other people and social media is a beautiful way to do it. I would just say be, uh, you know, dive into this topic more. I'm not an expert on this topic. There are plenty of people who are greater experts than I am, Uh, but I do encourage parents to learn more about it and proceed with caution when it comes to putting your child's um, information, face, identifying factors on the internet.
0: The last question I want to ask you ties into everything you've shared with us today about a collective commitment, about collaboration, about support and understanding. And that question is, what would your message be to teachers and educators right now who are frankly going through it in lots of different ways to try to honor their calling amid big challenges? What's your message to educators?
1: Hmm. Well, the, my biggest message is to avoid being a perfectionist. Be an improvementist. The goal isn't to be perfect every day. The goal is to improve a little every day. Right, part of no, we have the stress of the, the the system weighing down on us for sure. Right, the system one hundred percent isn't perfect, and it's got a lot of flaws, and I would say it does a lot of harm. And that is that is a reality. And we're trying to navigate the system. We'll try to navigate ourselves and our own triggers. We'll try to navigate these unique little humans in front of us who have their own unique triggers and backgrounds. And it's tough. It's a very difficult job. Um, and the payoff isn't monetary. The payoff is the intrinsic reward you get from doing the job. Um, and so that's really tough. And I'm here to acknowledge it's, 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 we have a really, really tough job and to expect to get it right all the time is an unrealistic expectation. And a lot of us have a lot of perfectionism in us and it's not a good thing. It's not a helpful thing, right? It it, it slows our growth. It slows us from improving. And it really makes our days more of a struggle than it already is because, it, not only is the system beating down on us we may have uh parents beating down on us we may have uh uh our, our bosses beating down on us we have may have kids beating down on us right um the last person who needs to be down on us is ourselves right we need to be able to uh give ourselves empathy in situations and and that will allow you, that will make space for you to try different things, knowing that they might fail, knowing that you might mess up. But the point isn't to for it to get it right the first time, every time. The point is to move the needle a little closer towards growth, a little a little closer towards our own internal peace and to share that with the children around us, with the classroom around us, with the community around us. And if we do that, if we are able to do that, give ourselves grace and give children grace uh, while we're both on this learning journey together, we will be building the foundations of world peace.
0: I feel like I need to capture that and play it to myself every day as a reminder and affirmation that we're on this journey together. Mr. Chaz is a teacher, content creator, and host of Mr. Chaz's Leadership Parenting and Teaching Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Disrupted.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I hope this helped and please follow me on social media to learn more. I I barely even scratched the surface with this interview. So please come into my world and learn
2: more.
0: Many caregivers rely on research to help them figure out the best ways to raise children. But what if the research doesn't apply to your particular culture and experience? Our next guest looks at exactly that challenge. Nandita Chaudhry is an independent scholar and visiting professor at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil. She studies cultural development psychology. Professor, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you very much, Kalila. It is an honor to be with you. I love the radio. I always have. We uh, grew up at a time when there was no television and the radio was our source to the world.
0: Thank you. And So let's talk about that then, because you said radio was this way of sharing information, understanding, helping us to connect to stories and experiences that may not be our own. And so for our listeners, I want to start by having you let them know, what is cultural development psychology and how does that connect to your interest in that area?
2: It is uh, the purpose of my academic career. I studied as a developmental psychologist, but I gradually began to uh, understand that the way in which Uh, childhood and family life is transacted in India wasn't represented in this uh, version of developmental uh, studies, uh, developmental psychology more specifically. And it was a growing discomfort, but there was a point at which I realized that I had to look for an alternative framework to better understand the people I was working with and the ideas I was working within. That is the point when I encountered the discipline of cultural psychology, and I began to look at cultural developmental psychology as an appropriate home for my ideas, a a more appropriate theoretical frame within which I could adequately and authentically uh, talk about and uh, conduct research and write theoretical uh, propositions about childhood and family life in India, but I think it also extends to other parts of the world because here I am in Brazil.
0: There you are. And so much of what we think of when we talk about developmental psychology, in particular child psychology, you and others have argued has been very much a narrow Western-centric framework. And that has dominated the thinking in the field. And the challenge, as we increasingly become more globally aware, the challenge is that that very narrow framework does not align with people in different parts of the world, even within the United States. It overlooks that diversity and the real culture that shapes meaning, purpose, and development. How was going into that field of study, that very Western centric dominated field. How did that differ from your own experiences growing up and what you knew as being familiar to that area?
2: Well, most of what made sense to me when I was a student, of course, I was in a program that was interdisciplinary. So when you compare, uh, when when you study sociological perspectives, anthropological perspectives, economic health uh, uh, issues, you're already provided with the idea that no one single perspective explains everything. So I would see that as a very formative uh, period of my resistance. I had grown up in post-colonial India, where we were educated. I was educated in a missionary school, and you know, uh, in spite of India's political resistance and cultural, um, the survival of the culture, the education system was dominated by the English-speaking Western scientific position. So uh, we all, my brothers um, and my siblings and myself and my parents, who in the, with the objective of giving us a good education, sent us to these missionary schools because that's what they thought was being progressive. I'm indebted to them for those choices, but I also see myself as a product. Initially, the struggles that I had were because of the fact that their investments should not prove to be worthless. So what did I get from that? Well, I'm articulate in a language that is understood around the world. I'm able to speak with everyone, but... uh, somewhere I felt that the education that I received in school was in conflict with my home life. So it was uh, in order to accept one, you had to suppress the other. And that I see as a huge loss, uh, something that has been personally difficult at many times of my life. It continues to be because my siblings and I sometimes don't agree on several things, and their, uh, their views are important to me. Um, but you know, as you gray and you get older, you learn to accept that just as your perspective is valid, so is someone else's, and let let Diversity, tribe and you know the arguments and differences of opinion and doubts and uncertainties are very valuable if we want to learn more about human uh, the human being uh, as as a verb rather than a noun.
0: Coming up, more from Professor Nandita Chowdhury. She'll explain why no one parenting approach can work for everyone. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're re-examining how we think about raising children. We've been discussing how developmental psychology doesn't always represent cultures with psychologist Nandita Chowdhury. I wanted to learn more about a concept called WEIRD. It stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. It refers to the way that people who fit into those categories are disproportionately centered as subjects for research. I asked Professor Chowdhury to tell us more about the concept.
2: Sure, it isn't mine. I acknowledge the work of Henrik and his colleagues. And it was really like uh, an epiphany when I read this, I said, of course, Western developmental psychology in the way in which it has evolved. It wasn't always the case. I mean, if you look at European psychologists in the past, if you look at the work of Vygotsky and Piaget and some of the others who at least developmental psychologists will be familiar with. Their work was not bound by this idea that we need to repair everyone else to bring up their children in this one way. So when when weirdness came up as a catchphrase, I picked up on it because it represented very uh, clearly um, this whole package uh, of um, ways of looking at life that were determined by standards. These are, by the way, even called gold standards of care where the mother has to be caring and responsive and talking to the child. I mean, heavens, the mother has a life of her own, but developmental psychology in the what I could see did not acknowledge the fact that the mother also needed care. So when I looked at the indigenous broader framework of family life in India as much as a mother does the caring, that caring is shared with other people, as well as the care of the mother. So traditionally, for the birth of her first child, and sometimes even for the birth of multiple children, in a patriarchal family system and a battery local family system, where after marriage, a woman moves in with her husband's family or into a new local, which is the husband and wife move together, the mother would systematically return to her parents' home for the birth of the child. And the idea behind that was that this is the moment in her life when a woman needs care the baby is pretty much asleep most of the time and you know other people can take care of it, but what about the mother? So I think that there were these messages in the indigenous system of, re- of caring for everyone that I felt were completely absent. And I do think, and I'm not the only one, Erica Berman uh, in the UK has argued the same, that developmental psychology has, most place the maximum burden on the mother and hasn't considered enough the mental health and the well being of, of the mother. In the traditional system, children were expected to care for younger siblings and cousins. The first experience you had of a baby was not your own, which, it, which can be an overwhelming experience. Um, that is seen as uh, child labor in the modern way of looking at child rights. But uh, that misplaced uh, understanding of sibling care, which traditionally in India and in other parts of the world that has been uh, studied by other scholars like uh, Tom Weissner from LA, uh, that The the purpose behind that was teaching young children, maybe they were mostly girls, but also boys, to learn to care for someone younger than you, to give some relief to the adults, for the child, for the younger child, to learn things that the parents or the other adults around may not tell them. And, And that framework, that larger framework then became like a theoretical challenge for me. And I developed this, this model that, uh, because I'm not comfortable opposing the East and the West. And when we are, it's not just Western psychology, the West is, a, it's a direction, it's not a place. And, uh, uh, so when the idea of weirdness came up, I realized that a predominant amount, as as Henrik and his colleagues argued, that predominantly it's a very narrow slice of the Western Euro European and American population that is studied. On the basis of uh, uh, that research, you have created standards on parenting styles, on attachment behavior, um, on what is expected of the mother, and how best to raise children to be geniuses.
0: You know, I, I think it creates standards. I think it creates tremendous pressure particularly for those of us who grow up in families that don't fit into that narrow confine. You know, you talk about growing up in India. I grew up in the South. And the similarities there were that multi-generational, intergenerational connection of what it meant for me to grow up with my grandparents right there with me, to know that, you know, I didn't have babysitters because I had aunties or I had someone in the neighborhood who would be there. And so while they were taking care of me, I learned to also take care of elders. You you learn that empathy, you learn that humility, you pass on stories and traditions and connection. And I think particularly at a time in our world where things seem so contentious, you learn respect for other people because you see that your fates are tied. Given your work, given the the field that I should say, fields, because I really see you as this multidisciplinary scholar that's working across places, what would you say to parents or families who are listening to this and saying, yes, the professor gets it, that this experience doesn't have to be narrow? What do you say to like everyday people who may not be versed in the, the psychology but know the experience?
2: What I would like to say is that the way in which we bring up our children is determined by the socio-economic, historic, social, ideological, um, linguistic landscape in which a child is born. I do not wish to claim that the way in which we are parents bring up their children is wrong. No, it's right for them. And we need this kind of acceptance that diversity is the main principle of human life and human being and human society. And let a thousand ways of rearing children thrive. At the end of it, as my um, eminent colleague Heidi Keller has written, Child care practices are adapted to the social, ecological, economic, historical, cultural settings in which a child is brought up. So what I want to reassure parents uh, is, is to be able to stand up and acknowledge that, you know, there are diverse solutions to the universal problem that society needs to care for its children, but nobody can tell you that this way is a good one, fine, maybe there are, you know, good and not so good ways of uh, raising children, but that's true of every society, right? There are some people who will... Pass judgment on others. Hey, we do that all the time. You see someone in the mall, and you see a bawling child. Immediately, the glance goes uh, to you know, sort of looking at the parent and saying, "My God, that's a bad parent." So it it seems very natural for us to judge others. And yet you stop yourself because you don't know what the circumstances are within which similarly using this example, please do not tell other societies how to bring up their children and developmental psychology through international NGOs like UNICEF and World Bank are actually at this very moment promoting the idea of what is called the nurturing care framework among poor communities around the world to say, bring up your children like this, then your life will be sorted. They will, so the model is presented. And my worry, my urgent worry is that if childcare practices are adapted to the social context, making them change one thing and not changing the economic conditions might actually result in the very harm that people are trying to prevent. It is now a campaign for me. But I don't have uh, the temperament of an activist, so I just accept, uh, you know, uh, invitations to speak as and when I can. So this this notion of uh, adapt childhood and childcare practices as being adaptive, being kinder to your own parents, because we're constantly looking back and saying, "Hey, you did." you didn't do that right, or you messed me up. I mean, no parent wants to mess up a child, right? There are circumstances that are difficult. So If you're telling people who are living in difficult circumstances that they're also bad parents, where is the justice in that? Why, why haven't people called out because... Because people who live in poverty do not have the energy. They're so busy making two ends meet. They don't have the energy to become activists. So we as academics and professionals have to speak on their behalf. As as these uh, author Matthew Desmond in Poverty by America, which you may know, has said, we all have to become poverty activists. And I see myself as, as uh, in a very small way, contributing to that movement.
0: That was Nandita Chowdhury. She's an independent scholar and visiting professor at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil. She studies cultural development psychology. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. This episode was also produced by our intern, Letitia Peters. Special thanks to our intern, Joey Morgan. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.